Hey there, friend. Listen, I want to invite you to join me for an upcoming presentation I'm offering called How to Shift from Willpower to Want Power. If you're tired of feeling like you have the best of intentions with food and weight, only to have it all fall by the wayside by the time your head hits the pillow at night, then this is for you. If you're interested in making permanent weight loss easier and less of a struggle, then this is for you. If you're curious what want power is, which you probably should be, and can't wait to learn how to incorporate it into your journey toward peace and freedom around food, then this is for you. I'll be presenting live twice on Wednesday, May 1st, 2024, at both noon and 7.30 p.m. Central Time Zone. I'll answer your questions live and we'll have a really good time together. But if you can't make either of those days, I'm not going to make you get a replay emailed into your inbox only for it to get lost and never be watched no matter how deeply you want to make time to go through it. Because I mean, honestly, who are we kidding? (laughs) We've all done this, including me. No, instead, we are offering multiple watch parties for several days after the live presentation. So come watch the replay with other doctors and interact in the chat with them and my team. So either way, whether you come live or to a watch party, it will be worth your time for sure. All you have to do is register at katrinaubellmd.com forward slash want power. That's katrinaubellmd.com forward slash w-a-n-t-p-o-w-e-r. See you there. You are listening to the Weight Loss for Busy Physicians podcast with Katrina Ubel, MD, Conversations About Racism in Medicine, Part 3. Welcome to Weight Loss for Busy Physicians, the podcast where busy doctors like you get the practical solutions and support you need to permanently lose the weight so you can feel better and have the life you want. If you're looking to overcome your stress eating and exhaustion and move into freedom around food, you're in the right place. Well, hey there, my friend. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to part three of the series, Conversations About Racism in Medicine. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for listening. I did want to encourage you to share these episodes, this whole series with your social networks, with your friends, with the people that you work with, whether they are doctors themselves or working in healthcare or really anybody who you think is interested in learning more and is interested in progressing themselves further and just hearing different perspectives. I think what I'm one of the things that I'm learning is just how I mean, of course, we know everybody's different, but everyone is so different. Their experiences are so different. The way that you find out for a specific person, more about them, more about what they go through, and what about more about what their perspectives are is by asking them and talking to them. And even when that's kind of uncomfortable, even when it's really uncomfortable. And of course, it depends on what your relationship is to a certain extent, but it is totally okay and encouraged to find out more, right? That's an action of caring by just discovering more and learning more. So today I have another one of my amazing clients. This is Melanie. She is a complete badass. (laughs) Just trust me on that. She is. And she has just some really, really good information. She talks about a number of resources. We're going to put all of those in the show notes page, which you can find on my website, going to katrinaubellmd.com forward slash podcast. You'll be able to find it there. And she just has, like like everybody, just her own unique perspective that I thought was so interesting. She is so articulate. She is really able to explain what's going on. And she also has the experience of not only being one of, you know, very few minorities in her specialty as a whole, but also one of very few women. And so her experience has been unique to to her. And, you know, of course, when you don't have many minority women in a certain field, there aren't going to be many of them to be able to talk about what the experience is like. So please listen, learn, just take it all in. And then please share this. Please share this with 
anybody, but particularly on your social media streams, it's going to help so many people to just know, hey, this is a good episode to listen to in this whole series. All right. With that, I bring you Melanie and I'll be back again tomorrow with another conversation. Hey, Melanie, thank you for joining me today. Hi, how are you? I am super glad to be talking to you and thank you for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right. So I have learned recently that, you know, before we start talking, it is a, it is okay to ask how you like to be referred to. So do you prefer black? Do you prefer African-American person of color? What do you prefer? I prefer black. You prefer black. Okay. Thank you. All right. So I usually start off by asking people to just kind of give them, give us a little introduction of themselves. So if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself. So I'm actually not American, so that's why African-American doesn't necessarily fit. But most people don't know that and most people don't assume that. So I you know, live the African-American experience. But I'm actually Canadian and um, I'm from an immigrant family. So I'm a first generation. I actually grew up or spent most of my formative years outside this country in the Caribbean and in an all-Black society. So I started in this country in undergrad in a historically black college and university. So I was, you know, really insulated and protected. And even though when I went to medical school, there were probably a dozen of us who were, who would identify as black. We all knew each other and we all stuck together and formed a pretty tight knit community, both within our class and within the other classes ahead of us. And so that was my group of people. And so again, a lot of us had gone to the same undergrad and we all knew each other. So there wasn't necessarily from that kind of social um, structure exposure to the wider community, but we were aware that, you know, we were a minority and certainly the lack of diversity was, was present. And then, you know, I went to my residency and then I was aware that I was an, a minority, minority. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, you really and flipped, really flipped things it. significantly. Yeah, yeah. I really, yeah. I really felt it because then, you know, it was just me. I was the only person of color. Well, actually, I was the only black person in my program for four out of the five years. And while we had brown individuals, there were two Latinos, and we took about six residents a year. So it wasn't a small program. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and so, so the consciousness for me has been something that I've developed over time. It wasn't something that I was raised with because I wasn't raised in this country. And so wasn't Mm -hmm. necessarily aware of the ongoing and just kind of constant struggles that people go through. And, you know, my parent, one of my parents is a professional, the others been to graduate school. And for much of my understanding, like I couldn't understand why people couldn't just go to school and work hard because, you know, my immigrant parents came from someplace else with nothing. I mean, they came from houses where they had no running water or, you know, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And, and, and came to, my mom was educated in this country. She went to Howard and were able to put themselves through and, and achieve. So it seemed to me not to be that difficult. And I am guilty of being one of the privileged Black people who separated themselves from the poor Black people. And, you know, why can't these people just work hard? And And I think that's a lot of the attitude that people have, right? It's like, well, you know, if they only ate better, they wouldn't be diabetic. And if they only took their medicine, their blood pressure would be under control. And so, and and I didn't necessarily really link how I was treated differently to being Black because I didn't want to make it about race. I wanted to work hard and not use that as an excuse, so to speak. And so I wanted to prove myself on my merit and 
not acknowledge that race could be a problem because then it, it wasn't something that I did that I could fix. And I was very conscious and, and very kind of committed to pushing through and working hard and proving myself. And so I, I did. But in retrospect, as I look back, I'm like, huh, <laughs> well, you know, maybe you weren't quite, you know, it, it's, it's, and then, you know, is it my race or my gender or is it both, you know? And, well, and, and, and without exposing exactly what field you're in, like women and minorities are massively underrepresented. Oh, absolutely. In your specialty, like ridiculously yeah. underrepresented. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, so, so is it, is it, which one is it, you know, and, and one never knew and it was probably both, frankly. So there, it, it's a little bit hard to separate, but, you know, just in, feeling the isolation and being the only person of color and feeling uncomfortable in spaces where why shouldn't I feel comfortable, you know, was working. And the other thing too, is I, I ended up reading um, an article in the Atlantic called the case for reparations, which I, I think everyone should read who doesn't really understand that racism is not an individual action but it is a system. It is a well-worn and well-structured system that ensures that people of color will not succeed in this country and will never succeed enough to threaten the power of those who benefit from their subjugation. And that, that it, and And so then the idea of, well, you know, I'm black and my parents are black and they worked hard and we worked hard and we did this just didn't really hold true anymore because the reason there were only 7% of African-Americans in my medical school class is that no one else really stood a chance, right? There's, There's no, you know, if you are coming from a failing elementary school, you don't right. stand a chance. No. There is, there, it's just, you know, it's not. It's so happen. hard for like baseline. Yeah. Right. If you don't have that kind of support from early on. Yeah. yeah. You're hosed. Yeah. It's not going to happen. So, I mean, and so I've chosen to educate myself about the country that I live in and understand why people who look like me, who I thought I was different from, but I'm not have a very different experience and can't see the world can't see the world in terms of opportunity because that has been stripped from them a long time ago another book by Tanasi Coates he wrote the first article is between the world and me and it it's a very poignant expression and a very poignant kind of look at how the the hope and the the any sense of the possibility of opportunity is stripped away at a very young age. And so, you know, if if you have no hope for the future, then what is the point? Right. And and that is and the systems that exist take that hope away. And so here we are. So here we are. So so it sounds so it sounds like over the last however long you have been educating yourself more and understanding yeah. things more. How has that changed your perspective in general in all of the Well, ways? I mean it's changed my perspective in that I realized that number one my education and relative privilege do not protect me at all. <laughs> And that it doesn't make me any better or any different. And that to the extent that I've succeeded, you know, what can I then do to help my fellow person? And that becomes a bigger challenge. And, you know, I think I fall victim to that same, it's too big a problem for any one person to fix. Maybe I just focus on practicing medicine. But I think there's something that everybody can do you know, even just in terms of recognizing 
what role you as an individual may play as part of a bigger system or as part of a way to change a system. You know, a system only exists because the people who benefit from it continue to perpetuate it. Well, you know, I was watching a video where the woman said, listen, if you go out to brunch, then you can make a difference. Like you, if you're yes. sitting at a table with three other people, you can make a difference. Like it's, it's when you're aware of the system, systemization of it, you can have an educated conversation. You can call people out or, and, and that doesn't mean like in an aggressive attacking sort of manner necessarily, but not just letting things go. Yeah. Even being aware that there is something happening that you are letting go, right? That already is huge. Yeah, I mean, even just the awareness of things that are, you know, for example, you know, you're on rounds with the medical student or, you know, you know, I mean, I've been asked to empty bedpans more times than I can count, right? I bet. <laughs> you know, you yeah. go in a patient's room and you're wearing a white coat that says Dr. So-and-so and they ask for the doctor like several times and you introduce yourself as that, your name badge and they're like, so when's the doctor coming in? You just yeah. Like, all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you just let it go. But, you know, where, where those sorts of things are witnessed, say, you know, I just kind of calling them out and, and, and showing that, number one, that the person who is facing these sorts of, they're not even microaggressions, you know, this, it's the implicit bias kind of that is in all of us. So, you know, calling it and naming it and, and not being afraid to have the conversation because I think we're afraid to talk about it. And oh, totally. I was thinking, I was thinking like, what else are we so reluctant to talk about? The only thing I could think about was sex. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah. Like it's like, you yeah. know, the thing where it's just like people just are so ridiculously uncomfortable discussing it. Do not want to have that conversation. Yeah. And it's and, for the same yeah. reason that it's it's the vulnerability and the risk that is associated that there might be an instance in my past or my present where I might have said or done something that might be racist. And there's so much resistance to that because then it's like, well, if I'm, I'm a good person, right? So how could I possibly be racist and be a good person? And so, and so we immediately shut that down because it brings shame and shame brings hiding, right? And you want to hide. And so then you don't have the honest conversation. And, it, and you don't I, educate I don't, yourself, right? Yeah, like you you're not reading absolutely. books, you're not listening to podcasts, you're no. not watching movies, you're not yeah. doing anything. Because it's not my more. problem, right? Because and I you can just exist. don't want to feel bad, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> like I, I was saying, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that my son has been learning about the Holocaust and my husband and I have said on at least three occasions, you know, we really need to watch Schindler's List with him. Like this is, this is required. This is part of his education is to watch this yeah. movie. Except like literally what day are you like, you know what I feel like watching tonight? I feel like yeah. watching Schindler's List, right? Like you never, ever... You're like, I was kind of hoping for something more lighthearted, you know, like yeah. something like that, yeah. right? You got to gear yourself up for it. But then that, the, but then that moves on to, right, like just move towards the discomfort. It needs to be done and do it. Yeah. And just allow yeah. yourself to be with that for the growth that comes from yeah. it and the conversations that come from it. Yeah. Because kind of then, you know, then, then it no longer becomes, because there's a, an inherent defensiveness against being, you know, when the conversations come up in, you know, I find the white individuals in whom it's come up and I don't really engage like that because I, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm not an, enough of an optimist, but I think people change when they're ready to change and they'll seek out what they need to seek out to be able to educate themselves and see a different perspective. And so the conversations usually are, are white individuals trying to defend how much of a good person they are but they don't ever stop to think about how they really have believed the lies that have been told over generations that there is a difference between people because of the color of their skin. There is not, right? Yeah. The concept of race was not a part of the founding of this country. It came directly from the need to separate the poor whites and the poor blacks so that they would not band together and pose a threat to the rich white landowners. And so then you create the 
idea of race and you tell the poor whites that they're better than the poor blacks. And so then you can divide and conquer. And now you also have a cadre of people who can help to suppress that other cadre of people to keep your economic machine running. So that's where race really comes from, right? There is no race. And we know that because, you know, the Italians and so have all now merged into what is now known as white. And and so it all kind of is fluid. It's all a construct. It's not, it's people's thoughts that they've believed over and over again. Sorry. Right. Right. No, but it really is true. I was reading something about that too. Like just, you know, there really is no race. Like we think there is because that's what we've been taught, but it's just not true. Yeah. So then, so then there's really no difference, right? What is the difference? It's not an inherent difference. You know, you look at COVID and you're like, oh, well, you know, the reason these black people, they've got all these pre-existing conditions. No, not really. You know, I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they're also, they're also poor, right? And they have to go to work. There was a Detroit bus driver who, you know, is on driving his bus and a woman's, you know, on there coughing. Why is he driving the bus? Because he's poor. He has to drive the bus, right? Right. He died of COVID because that's, you know, how he has to survive. So, eh, you know, I think that there's a lot of the reasons we blame the victims for their plight that aren't true. Yeah, totally. Totally. I am curious about your experience within medicine in yeah. terms of how you've been treated. I know you've had a career that's been split. You, you've had experience in the academic side. You've had experience on the private practice side. I'm curious just what your experience has been, like stories to share. I don't even know necessarily what to ask. Uh, like what, yeah. I mean, I can imagine things that could have happened, but what I have think- what have been some experiences where you're like, seriously, like what is happening right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it was, um, you know, a lot of my training, especially was in an area where it was hard to kind of parse why you were being treated the way you were being treated. And, you know, is it just the universal just kind of environment of the place or, you know, but I think for me, one of the the key things that I look at is that finding mentors who believed in my success and were invested in my success have been few and they, they've come late. And, and that is one, you know, I'm, I'm one of the percentage of people who went through, came in as assistant professor. And then when you look at, you know, minorities, women, what are not, there's a big drop off from the assistant to the associate professor level. And, and it's because of, you know, there's not really overt racist acts where it's like you're being yelled at or called the N word or so. It's just the implicit assumptions that are made about your ability to succeed. Number one. Number two, it's the willingness of someone to stretch themselves and mentor you because it's a lot easier to bet on that winning horse who looks just like you Mm. because then that inherently makes you look good because then you can then show this you know thoroughbred off and be like well you know of course I you know mentored and trained all the credit yeah right young man Right. Mm-hmm. And and so that opportunity does not exist for those who don't look like the people who have the power to not only mentor, but sponsor. Right. The sponsorship is how you get ahead in academics. And so that I've I, I've been fortunate in that I've actually worked with people who are not like that and who have been very supportive and so, so that's been a benefit, but it came late. And I think because mm-hmm. it came late, it still wasn't enough to erase a lot of the self-doubt and the constant fatigue of knowing that you have to prove that you belong, prove that you're good enough, and the fear of anytime something doesn't go quite right are they then going to say, well, of course it wouldn't go right because she's, you know, whatever, woman, black, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and carrying that kind of cloud over your head and shoulder is, 
exhausting, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, but it's real because you know that you're not looked at the same way. And so you have to be perfect to be perceived as being just as good just, yeah. as someone who doesn't look like you. Yeah. And I, I also want to, I, I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds by saying that, you know, having coached you, it's easy then to make that mean something really negative about you. Like there's something wrong with me. And that's why, yeah. like, yeah. I didn't push hard enough to find the mentors or I didn't like, it's, yeah. it's your you know, fault. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas maybe, maybe it wasn't, you know, but I, you, you can't really see that when you're just trying to just prove yourself good enough to, to do this thing that you really believe in doing and really believe is your calling to do and are actually good at and have to, you know, just kind of believe that. And yeah, so, so, so that's been, been my experience. I mean, you know, I've, you know, had patients ask, you know, say they don't want a black doctor. Um, Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, just in both academia and and private practice. Private practice. Um, So, I mean, that happens. Um, you know, you're just like, oh, man, I'm the only person I call today. <laughs> Sorry, no, I have to t- just, I just remembered this story just as you were saying that. My, uh, my dad had prostate cancer many years ago. It was actually when I was in residency. And I was able to get a week, or I don't know, I somehow got off and, you know, was able to go to be with my family to support him during his surgery. And he had been connected through a family friend with the head of the urology department and that this academic place. And, you know, he was like all in on this guy and this was going to be so great. And so it was where I went to medical school. So I knew the area some, we sent him off on his way and, you know, to go back, have the surgery. And they said, oh, it's going to be a number of hours. Why don't you guys go and, you know, get some breakfast or something. So we did. And of course I knew a good place to go to. We're having, you know, we're relaxing me and my brother and my mom. We come back, check back in, and they're like, oh, yeah, we tried to call you. And we're like, wait, what? What happened? Well, it turned out, I don't even remember the specifics, but that doctor couldn't do the surgery that day. There was something that happened and like super last minute, he couldn't do it. And yeah. they couldn't reach us to ask us whether it was okay if the other another doctor did it. And yeah. apparently they had already sedated my dad, but they woke him up and asked him if it was okay, which of course he didn't remember at all afterward. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, are yeah. you allowed to do that? I don't know. That was a little weird. But yeah, so you've gotten you sedation, know, you can't control. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, technically, I don't think that was supposed to happen, but whatever. But anyway, so it ended up being a black woman urologist who did it. Yeah. And I was just like inside, I was like, yes. just so please I mean she did an excellent job he's been you know hasn't has been cancer free for decades now yeah but I was just probably got a better technical surgeon than you would have from the department chair who doesn't typically operate that much (laughs) is flying around the country giving talks yeah right yeah yeah (laughs) Exactly. Just saying. But, but I'm, just, I, I'm just thinking, like, you know, I, I don't know if someone had, you know, referred my dad to her, if he would have really been like, I'm all in. Like, I want to think, yeah. yes, I don't know if that would have been the case. But inside, I was like, that's right. I'm <laughs> just like, yeah. Yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So I mean, it, it, it and, you know, I, to the extent that that exists, it exists. You know, I think we do the best job we can. We put our patients first because it's really about them and getting them through. And I think as as minority physicians, we don't necessarily bear our own, you know, we don't go to work thinking about this every day because that, that's not why we're there or, or what we're doing, at least for me personally. And I guess that it's good and bad, right? It allows me to function, do my job well. And when, you know, if and when someone wants another physician, it's like, okay, fine, whatever, and I move on. But then I don't really necessarily stop and process it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, after a while, you know, you Right, you really, it's just kind of this collection vessel and there yeah. comes a point, right, where it's full, yeah. Yeah, and so I think, you know, just with more awareness of, 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 processing the, these things when they happen 
and you process it and you move on and you kind of look at, you know, where there can be change in the system, where that awareness is going to come from and hope that that awareness happens. And I don't know, I think now it may be a little bit of, I don't think it's a 180 turning point, but I think, I think, I think there's at least a, a little bit more of a shift, hopefully in the right direction. Because even compared to, you know, 20, I think it's 2014, when the Michael Brown incident happened, I don't think there was quite as much of a broad-based conversation in multiple different areas. It was still the same pattern over and over again. And, you know, when the George Floyd thing happened, you know, for the first few days, I I was just like, no, whatever. I mean, what's going to change, right? Mm. Black person gets killed by police, police get off, it's going to happen again. So that was phase one. Maybe that was denial. <laughs> then I went into or maybe just not wanting to even get your hopes up, right? Because how many yeah, times yeah. have they been dashed and then, nothing changes? Yeah. And then and then that and then you know, you look at Ahmad Aubrey, who was essentially lynched in Georgia. Hello. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. You know. And and then so then I went into, you know, kind of anger. <laughs> I mm-hmm. said anger for a few days and then just just the weight of the overall lack of regard and thought that a black body means nothing and that a white person mm-hmm. can do anything they want to do with it. I made the mistake of watching the Central Park video and, and that angered me even more because, you know, those are the sad, like, I know what it's like to be in those spaces and feel like you're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, it's a little safer for me because I'm a woman and I'm not seen as a threat. I'm just seen as why are you here, whatever. But, you know, for him, I mean, that was a, a potential life and death moment. That woman could have killed him. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and, and to see the intention with which that act was done, knowing the power of her color to dis- potentially destroy someone because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing is, is, you know, beyond words, but that's just kind of the way, you know, you kind of have to prove you belong in the spaces. I I spend too much money when I go shopping because it's like, I belong to be here and I have just as much money as anyone else. So, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) so, which is a little counterproductive, you know, (laughs) um, (laughs) But, but, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm like, you know, they walk in, you know, you walk into the store and they just kind of look at you and they're just like, you know, so I carry my Louie with me. It's like a fucking shield. Excuse my friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I carry, yeah. my, I carry yeah. my Louie with me like a shield. It's like, and it's real. It's not a yeah, right. I got from a trunk in the hood actually. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'm aware that as I move in certain spaces, I'm initially looked at as someone who doesn't belong there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where people like me, like we just don't even like, that's where we don't even see our privilege. Like, right. Like I go into the mall and I, that's just not a concern. I mean, if I have gone into a very, very ritzy super yeah. high-end boutique or department store. Yeah. I have felt the like, are you supposed to be in here a little? But that's just like the tiniest little sliver yeah. of that, right? That's that's yeah. just the the tiniest little step dipping my toe into that experience. Yeah. And not even knowing, not even being aware that that's just yeah. the regular experience. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and it it's there the little things that you do to, you know, like always carry your receipts with you. you know? mm-hmm. If you, if you buy something, you know, don't just put it in your bag, take a store bag and keep the receipt with the store bag with it. Just because you don't want to necessarily have to end up in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. I mean, the, the, this is how we live every single day. Yeah. Have you, I'm just curious, have you ever had any interaction with the police that was, I mean, I've been pulled over for speeding now, was I speeding? Yes. <laughs> 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 so, 
So, so, you know, although the last of the, like I was pulled over like three times in like a short period of time. I was like, really? And, you know, I have a short haircut. So I was like, okay, really? Like the last time I went driving that fast, I didn't think. Mm-hmm. I was just going about five over common speed trap. I, I personally haven't really, you know, they pull me over for, you know, whatever. And I always get ticketed though, you know, I, mm. I you know, people. Like you never get the warning. They're like, Hey, next time. Recently in this town I have, but I'm now in a relatively liberal college town where I'd not lived. So before, so I never, yeah, it was always like, you know, side eye in a ticket and it doesn't, doesn't really matter. So, so, I mean, I'm careful, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not trying to Love the law or anything like that. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to say that you know speeding's okay, but right, right. You know, some of us have a lead foot, and you know, right, so. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. What have you seen in terms of patients, Black or African American patients, being treated, maybe in a way that they shouldn't have been treated? Well, you what know, you I think it, I think it's a general attitude of blaming the victim for their disease and for their their lack of having the resources to take care of themselves. And so our systems don't, or medical systems don't make it easy for African-American and the poor really to navigate through, you know, they got to find their way to their own appointments. You know, we're calling them, they may not have phones, you know, we don't have other ways to reach out to them. We're not really trying to expand our, or for example, you know, who's your five people who I can reach out to as opposed to just the one person so that I can make sure that, you know, we get you in. Are we really making sure that we explain, you know, why these things are important? You know, do we acknowledge the mistrust that exists in the healthcare system for the not necessarily, so there there is mistrust in the African American community against the healthcare system, right? And we know that exists with good reason, and and you know the Tuskegee experiment and all that, and mm-hmm. and people know that, and so rebuilding that trust, I think, is something that we haven't done a good enough job about. And I think that's going to require us to, number one, acknowledge that it's real and it exists because every institution has none of the institutions with which Black people interface work for them at all, Mm. (laughs) like none. Healthcare, education, criminal justice, housing, none, right? Yeah. So 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 that's the backdrop at which people are coming into our healthcare system. And healthcare systems are hard to navigate for anyone, right? Much less someone who doesn't have the resources and is poor. Yeah. Totally. What do you think white people in medicine can do to be an ally? Awareness? I think there's a lot. I think, I think there's a lot. So one is awareness and educating themselves and that education come can be painful because then you may have to face and realize that there have been times where you might've done or said something that perpetuated the implicit bias that is part of the foundation of the racist systems that then, so there are individual acts and systemic system, you know, and, and systems. And I think it's a combination of both. So one is education and awareness, you know, understanding and recognizing the the privilege that comes with being white and looking like you're supposed to be a doctor, recognizing that your minority trainees may need a little bit more support and mentorship, like real mentorship. Like think about the way you were mentored and think about are you willing to provide that same mentorship to somebody who doesn't look like you and who may not have that same, you know, he's a superstar type of, mm. you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> promise, so to speak, uh, that you take for granted. Reaching out to 
you know, the pipeline is, 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 is where in medicine or workforce is suffering, right? Because people can't get into medical school if they can't get into college. They can't get into college if they can't graduate from a decent high school. And, you know, we all know the inequities in education are vast. And so, and so, but, but there are high schoolers who make it out. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. and those are ones who actually think about the possibility because, you know, people don't think about the possibility of I could actually become right. And they're not exposed, but, you know, you take a bright kid from any background and you expose them to something that interests them and that ignites their passion. They're going to, they're going to succeed. They're going to succeed. Right. Until we tell them that they can't. Yeah. Do you think that that message is just surrounding them all the time? Like not necessarily like explicitly, you can't do this, although that may be part of it but just kind of maybe even, you know, like a white kid goes, Hey, I think I want to be a doctor. And people are like, that's amazing. Yeah. And then a black kid says, Hey, I think I want to be a doctor. You think that the, the reaction doesn't even, doesn't even, even happen. That. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, okay. and, and that's the difference. The difference yeah. is that thought doesn't even, doesn't even occur. To you them. know, that thought yeah. won't occur. Right. Because they look around their circumstances and, and that's not even, a possibility. It is for some, but I I -hmm. think for the great majority, it is not. And that is where the change needs to happen. Yeah. But I think, and then recognizing that we exist in medicine, but medicine is not separate from society and the two interface very closely. And, you know, we live in our communities and the people we see, our patient population is a direct result of socioeconomic factors, factors of the community in which we work. Right, right. Just kind of on maybe a lighter note, not even really, but just if you could just have like white people's ear for a second, like what are some things that you're like, listen, just you need to know this, like stop doing this or start doing that or you think yeah. you're doing the right thing here and you're really not. Please don't yeah. do that. Yeah. Or hair is not a curiosity and <laughs> never touch it. Like don't. It's just hair. Just don't. Just don't. Yeah. Just just, just don't. Um, is it okay to comment on it if you like it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. But okay. <laughs> I don't know. I have to okay. think about that because, you know, because, you know, Sometimes the comments are like, oh, it's different. Yes, it's different. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I think it's okay. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think it depends on, you know, kind of your relationship and whatnot. But, yeah. you know, you know, the hair is just, but, but never touch it. Just don't yeah. even ask. <laughs> <laughs> Good. You know, I think, I think, be you know don't be afraid to talk about race it's there we know it's there it's the elephant in the room right Mm -hmm. and and you know don't be so afraid of maybe acknowledging that at one point you might have said or done something that was racist it doesn't mean you're a bad person and that that's where that connection is you know, we know, I mean, I think that people are intrinsically good and want to do the right things, but I think there's just so much ignorance around this, you know, educate yourself, read. There's so many resources out there to really understand how the systems were built, even policing. I was listening to a podcast called Throughline yesterday. They have an excellent episode about the history of policing. And how the police forces in the South, in the North, that were a little bit different, were originated from slave patrols. That was the first police force in the South, a slave patrol. So then you're going to wonder why African-Americans don't trust the police. Think about that. Right. (laughs) Right. Come on. I just watched 13th with my family, which everyone should watch. It's on Netflix last night with my son and my husband. And it was just like, I learned, I mean, it was like a masterclass and, you know, 
Because this isn't Power taught in schools. Yeah. The education no. that you get in schools isn't, isn't, you don't learn the history of right. what actually happened. You learn the history that will allow the lies to be perpetuated. But I also think too, you know, what I, what I noticed was like, I mean, I went into college thinking I was going to be an engineer. And of course I chose the most difficult, you know, type of engineering that the school had with lots and lots of requirements. And then midway through that, I decided I wanted to go to medical school and I didn't want to take longer than four years. So then I had additional things even on top of it that I had to do, you know, in terms of credits and things like that. And And so, you know, did I take a few liberal arts classes? I did, but it was very much like, well, what kind of grade can I get on that one? Because I was already taking such hard stuff, like I needed anything that could help me to increase my GPA. And, you know, is, is it... I don't know if there are any easy A's where I went to where I went to school, but you know, easy enough, easier sure. maybe. Yeah. And does it perpet, you know, does it move me along toward my greater goal? Yeah. And so I didn't really feel the luxury to just like take a bunch of college classes and explore. And and we were talking about just, you know, the idea how you can audit college classes just to, I was saying, I was like, I'd love to, you know, like hear the lectures and read and have discussions, but I don't want to write any papers or take tests. Like that part I yeah. want to skip. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. But, but I think that can be part of it too. Like, I think that's the experience. Not everybody. There are plenty of people who are liberal arts yeah. majors who became doctors, but, but just recognizing like, I learned about a whole lot of things in my upper education, higher education experience. And a grand total of zero of them had anything to do with race, race relations, like anything, like anything at all. Right. And we don't teach it in medical school. And then, you know, in sort of certainly postgraduate training, there's no real discussion about why the outcomes, and I think doctors, I mean, I think medicine in general is just, is just struggling with this as a whole. That's why I want to have this conversation. You know, it's interesting because I was on Twitter and I saw a post from one of my training programs where the chair put out a more comprehensive statement than I've seen from other organizations coming out and blatantly calling out racism and calling for the department to participate in the kneeling yesterday. And I was literally with my jaw on the floor for a good five minutes because never in my wildest dreams would I believe that that would have been possible, but it is. And all it took was for a change in culture and one person who is a leader to say, yes, we're going to have this conversation and this is what we're going to stand for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay to be that person. I mean, I think so much of what I try to do with my own work, right? I mean, I'm, you know me, I'm always like, great, yes, we'll sure. get you to lose weight. But that's, I'm least interested in that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. We'll do that. Yeah. That's just, that just comes from us doing all this other work of getting your brain to a place where you are actually able to step forward and lead. Yeah. And so, so getting there is, is, you know, I think the brain mental part of it is, is key on both sides, because I think for African-Americans getting over kind of the mental stress and that constant feeling of being under attack. I mean, you know, you can't really, you know, when the body and mind are under attack constantly, you can't think and grow and, and explore and be creative. You can, but it makes it a little bit yeah. harder. And on the converse side, when one is in denial about the obvious things around it, then you can't really acknowledge, face them, learn, grow, and change. So yeah. it goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any ideas for somebody who is, you know, a white person who works, you know, let's say in a hospital setting or in a, you know, clinic setting? Like what they should they be on the lookout for, or what should they? Yeah, I mean, be I think about. I think one is to do implicit bias testing, and and there are websites on there if you look for implicit bias testing. So so do the test and expose what your implicit biases are, and and acknowledge them because if you don't, then you there's no fixing them. So do that. I have and not even see, heard of that test, so I will be yeah, doing so that. Yeah, so there's sure. a it's there's an implicit association test. 
because when you hear certain words, you think certain things. And so learn about where those implicit biases are. They exist for gender, they exist for race, for everything. And so, and so, so that's the first step that I would say. And then in your patient interactions, look for where you are applying those implicit biases. You know, do you think black non-compliant? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, do you the way you're gonna find out is by doing something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it's like. How do you see the thing that you can't see? Yeah. Right. Like that's that's what we have to figure out is yeah. how to and, yeah. and it sounds like this test could be really helpful too. Yeah. And then as I mentioned, you know, resources really looking at, you know, sort of, you know, if you have a patient who's, you know, got uncontrolled diabetes and you can't reach them, maybe there's a different way to go about it. And maybe, you know, if that person's living in a food desert and has no access yeah. or is poor and the, you know, most affordable foods are foods that are keeping their hemoglobin A1C up, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, a different way to go about it. And, and then that may require, but that's hard work, right? That we don't yeah. get reimbursed for. Yeah. And we're already burnt out. Mm-hmm. Yes. But a lot of that burnout is there's, you know, my opinion on that. There's, oh, a, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. the factors that go into it. And a huge yeah. part of it is our yeah. own brains burning ourselves out. So when Absolutely. we manage our brains a little, right. And, and stop feeling like we're the victim. Of yeah, exactly. our day, right? And now, now I'm expected to help this person who, you know, exactly. is non-compliant, you know, I mean, was, right? Right? It's like, hold on a second, like let's yeah. clean that up. <laughs> yeah, and you know, because I think I'm like, you spend five minutes of clean brain energy on how to help that patient, you're probably going to yeah. come up with something, yeah. rather than all the time you you know spend thinking yeah. about how it's you know you're being punished because you have yeah. to you know, deal with whatever. And maybe, and maybe you spend your first few visits just building a relationship with that person. Yeah. So that it's now you're coming from a place of mutual trust. Yes. And they're like, oh yeah, Dr. So-and-so is a good doctor. He, you mm-hmm. know, I trust him and he wants me to do this. And so then maybe you can get somewhere and make a little bit. Yeah. 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 Totally. I think that's, yeah, that's so powerful. All right. Well, as we tie things up, any final thoughts? Final experiences you want to share? Anything? It's like. I mean, I think, (laughs) I think, I think the key is open and honest conversations, open and honest introspection, and holding ourselves accountable, holding our medical system accountable, holding our medical educational system accountable, or leaders. I mean, there has to be accountability that is real or there will be no change. And the powerless have been trying. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. For decades and generations. And it's going to take a little bit of more of a collective effort to make that real change happen. But I think it can. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love that. I love that you have optimism about it, right? (laughs) Well, you have to. And I mean, I th- and, and I think, you know, I mean, things are not as bad as they were 100 years ago. So, you know, is progress as fast as we would like? No. But I think, you know, I think especially this moment gives me a little bit more optimism than I probably would have had, you know, maybe even a week ago. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Melanie, seriously, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for agreeing to come on and have this discussion with me. And I know it's going to help so many people. I learned so much. And so a huge thank you to you. No problem. Thank you for having this conversation. Did you know that you can find a lot more help from me on my website? Go to katrinaubellmd.com and click on free resources.